0: I just found it like the first week we did this and I was like, well, that's good enough. And I figure at some point we'll come up with something something new. Cool. Hello, everyone. My name is Dan Kamen. I'm a rabbi here at Congregation B'nai Amuna in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Every week, alongside my colleague, Rabbi Mark Boone Fitzerman, we bring you conversations with guests whose work, stories, and ideas are worthy of our consideration. This week, we're delighted to share with you our conversation with John Glazer, a conversation which happened just before the High Holidays this year. John joins us to speak about music making, creativity in the context of synagogue life, and his career in professional music and in Jewish music. We're so glad you're with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you're interested in more information about the synagogue, visit us on our website and check us out online. And all the different ways. Welcome to Two Rabbis and Hello everyone and welcome to Two Rabbis and John Glazer. We are happy to have you on our show today and to have you as uh, our guest in these conversations we've been having um all along the way uh by word of introduction, John it plays a key role in uh, the congregation's uh, musical life uh, as a piano player uh, for Congregation B'nai Amuna, but John, you are a son of the Jewish community of Tulsa, Oklahoma. You are a professional musician, you are a teacher, you are uh, uh, kind in ways beyond belief, and we're just so glad to have you today to 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 talk instead of play music and uh and explore ideas and your story and things like that. Um so oh, I wanted dude. to
1: <laughs> we're just glad I'm to so, have you. I'm so honored to be here.
0: <laughs> and Seriously. you'll ne- You'll note it's only one rabbi because, well, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fill the role of two rabbis. So if my voice changes along the way, that's just me being two different rabbis.
1: Well, I can do, I can do the impression of Rabbi Fitzerman if you need. Well, we might get
0: there, but let's okay. hold off on. <laughs> sure. Let's hold off on that. John, could you tell me how did you end up at a keyboard?
1: Boy, it's almost impossible for me to think of not being around a keyboard. Uh, My sister is here, and she knows the story. Our our grandmother kept her piano at the house that Andy and I grew up in, and Kim, too. And uh, I couldn't keep away from it when I was little. And actually, Andy still has the piano. But... uh, I just began playing when I was very young. I would listen to songs I heard on television or radio and I would run over to the piano and pick them out. And uh, the rest is mystery. The rest is mystery.
0: So it really it was a it was a kind of a first self-taught discovery experience with the
1: instrument. Yes. Very so, much.
0: There, I mean, there's a world of like musical theory and the the skills of learning to play an instrument. And then there's this artistry of being able to, I don't know, listen to something and, and regurgitate it. Um, how, how does that, like, how do you think about music? Are you thinking about, as someone who started playing the way you did, mm-hmm. are you more like the person who encountered that first keyboard or... Um, now along the way, are, where, where are you at?
1: Yeah, I'm still pretty similar to that little kid, but I acquired knowledge along the way, went to started studying theory in high school. I had uh, two different teachers that taught me that one of them to the point where I could test out of college level theory, which I did. I went to North Texas, what's used to be called North Texas State University, mm-hmm for I think about three semesters studied arranging and theory and improv and what was then called a jazz pursuing a jazz education degree and the rest was just practical experience Mm
0: -hmm. and so when you're playing are you are you I don't know how conscious of you are of what you're doing versus how much is it like an automatic response of how you engage with your instrument.
1: Rafi, the uh, the synagogue's cantor, mm-hmm. and I were talking the other day when when it's at its best, hopefully we are not thinking much at all. We are processing the sound and putting our hearts into it. And I'd, I'd like to I'd like to hope that that's a good portion of the time and but sometimes you do have to think and also take in the sounds that are going on around you I see our flautist Sandy is here
0: yeah
1: um take in what she's playing and hopefully um interact with her on a musical level to the best of my ability and and I know she'll do the same John how
0: soon or or when does Jewish music become part of what you do musically. Is it something from the very beginning? Are there Jewish musical influences um, that that kind of shape your journey?
1: Very much. Uh, When I was in grade school and attending the temple, Cantor Harry Sebron had me start playing (laughs) the instrument that shall not be named in, uh, in conservative congregations, the organ. (laughs) <laughs> had me started playing the organ for our uh Sunday assemblies at Sunday school.
0: Oh. So, so as a kid you were playing the organ in a ritual context or like in a, yes. in, in gatherings.
1: Yes, but only for the children, not at, we had a much more accomplished uh organist who would play Friday night services and he was also he could sight read which so he had a big benefit over me. And so
0: how, um, I guess when you play, like when you play the, I mean, you're playing professionally at the Bowl Me Alley all the time and you're playing gigs and and you're kind of all over. And then you also come to the synagogue to play music with us um, uh, over the past year, not frequently enough, but that's for other reasons. Um, uh, But so when you're, is there a difference in the way you approach creating music in the bowl in the alley versus um, the synagogue, and what what would what's what what is what are some of those things that you think about if there is a difference?
1: I think there's there is similarity in what you mentioned as the creative aspect. Is I'm gonna hear ideas in my mind and in both contexts and try to apply them until a rabbi says no <laughs> or. Or or if something conflicts with, with other ideas that somebody else has.
0: Uh-huh. You're creating ideas. But in, in terms of the, um, the performance, it, the experience of playing the piano in a in a gig setting versus in a synagogue setting or a ritual setting?
1: If a gig setting was a group setting, it wouldn't be that much different. Mm. Uh, where where the job that I've had for the last five and three quarters years is a solo setting, so I have more control. <laughs> I have uh, you know i could I can play more and prob and sometimes need to in order to fill the sonic space.
0: Could, could you talk about that difference between the experience of playing solo versus playing in a group?
1: Sure. Um, when you're playing, when a, a key or a keyboardist or a guitarist or any instrument that that is capable of producing, but utility to provide more rhythm, provide more sound. In other words. When Sandy is playing the flute, she's playing one note at a time, and unless she's tapping her feet with with uh, great facility, she can't uh, she can't provide the rhythms that a. Uh, it's called polyphonic, more than mm-hmm. one note at a time. And mm-hmm. so I can provide chords, melody, play a solo if I wish. And when when we're not wearing masks, I would sing too. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a vast difference between playing in a group and a solo. Although you don't have to play every note just because you have access to them.
0: That's really true. Is there um? That's really true. Is there like a a a, a characteristic of musical groups you've been a part of that makes them work well versus groups that maybe have worked less well um,
1: together? Just everyone listening to one another. People really, there's a term in music that people, in professional music, that people will say, she or he has big ears. And that's what you want to have as much as you possibly can. To try to take in as much of what's going on around you as you can.
0: Are big ears acquired or learned? Or, or uh, innate or, or, or learned? It,
1: it can be either. Yeah. Um, I think for people who are used to playing by themselves and then are thrust into situations with more people, I think it's probably more acquired.
0: Mm. That you have to learn how to have big ears. Yeah. How, how did you learn how to have big ears?
1: <sighs> playing in bands at an early age and actually harmonizing with my sisters. We, mm-hmm. uh, we gathered around the piano and, it was it seemed intuitive we went to the right harmonies a good amount of the time
0: feeling your way
1: interesting yeah and i think that family in family harmony situations that's pretty common you you talk about oh i'm trying to think of examples i know that in in country music and in in other kinds of music there are family bands mhm and there, there's nothing like family harmony because of physical structures, the, the mechanism that creates the voice, the vocal cords, the throat, the nose, things are similar. So you get similar tones in families. So
0: this means the Glazer family was always playing music as, as a household?
1: Quite a bit when we weren't fighting Um, Indy's laughing because she knows. Um, we, yeah, we, I mean, we would do that pretty frequently. And my my mom loved the sound of music, and my dad didn't cheer, didn't chip in as much as I wish he would have. He's actually served as a substitute canner at the synagogue back in the day, and I didn't ever get to hear him, but. People my whole life have been saying your dad had a really good voice,
0: but he wasn't part of the kind of musical production in the in the household. But had the voice and had the yeah. the, the skill set. That's I mean, it's so interesting. He was a service in the in the way that you and I know so so many in your family are kind of service leaders and kind of take this role. You're really it's a family business. I didn't yes. know the generational piece of that.
1: And you. Thanks for mentioning uh, my nephew, Dan, is a song leader. Uh, he goes, I can't remember the name of the camp. And Andy can't unmute. Or maybe camp Green? She can. Can camp Green, Green yes. In Green Texas, family camp. Green, family, Green camp. family camp, yes. So he's been doing that for years. He does other projects, some of which mm-hmm. I don't even know about.
0: And so when you guys were playing music and if you think about the early musical influences, what, what, what was that music? Was it, I mean, it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma and you're growing up. So what, what was, what was it?
1: A little bit of folk music, but, and I guess maybe this would be called folk music Uh, in musical theater. We did songs from Oklahoma and we did Songs that our parents would sing in the car on vacations, some of which were uh, college fight songs, some of which were service, U.S. service fight songs, mm. um, not even fight songs, just U.S. service. Oh, there was this one song about uh, about food falling off the table that I can't remember. Was a, it was a Navy kind of a fun comedy song. And uh, it was like, food that they give us, they say, is mighty fine. One jumped off the table and killed a friend of mine. I don't want no more of Navy life. Anyway, so those, yeah, that's the one. So they were, I mean, just silly songs that, and this extended into our uncles uh-huh. on my maternal side that the, uh, we had a, Uncle in Kansas City who played accordion, and he knew all these songs. My uncle in Massachusetts, he, and it was hilarious because I'm actually very slowly writing a compilation of short stories. And I'm including that my uncle in Massachusetts, who was about five feet tall, and my dad, who was about six feet four, would sing these songs together and get the biggest smiles on their face and have the time of their lives. That's incredible. It's joyful stuff, you know. Oh. And how do you think, yeah Yes. Yes. And they sang beautifully. They sang a The Sabbath family sang prayer. at your bar mitzvah. Both of my sisters did. They sang a, a Sabbath prayer, and they were accompanied by Mrs. Henry Mark. Um, I don't remember her first name. She played flute, and it was gorgeous. It was probably the highlight of my bar mitzvah, because I don't remember how I sang. Well, I have a tape. Uh, we
0: should find that tape, John.
1: I've got you, you the sets. Okay, we can, we've got we to.
0: I think we've got to figure out something to do with that. There's, there's certainly something musical worth, uh, worth, worth exploring there.
1: And we can rip off the Sabbath prayer because <laughs> it's gorgeous,
0: um, and recreate it too for yeah, uh, but, but, for for new liturgical settings. Exactly. Are there, staying on the musical influences thing, right? Sure. So like you're playing music in the home, you're singing these jolly, good feeling music. Yeah. Is there, is there like something you hear in formation that says, man, I don't even know how they're doing it. And I want to be able to do that. That like is a goal setting that leads you on your kind of deeper on your musical journey.
1: That's easy. And it's, I'm one of, I suspect thousands across the world who saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and said, that's what I want to do.
0: Really? I mean, it
1: was instantaneous. It was, and again, I have to thank my sisters because they were the ones who knew that the Beatles were going to be on TV. And they, and I was like, what's a beetle. Could could you, could you describe or
0: try to describe what you saw or felt like, what was it that brought you that that pushed you in that direction?
1: Sure. I can, I can still feel it now. Um, It (sighs) it tingles. It's like uh, we were sitting in front of the black and white TV and I saw these four guys performing beautifully, singing beautifully. They wrote their own songs. I mean, I didn't know this when I was four, but they were, I just instantaneously, and maybe the girls screaming, I don't know. But I think it was mostly the music. I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do.
0: And you've done it. I mean, you've made a career of playing music all along the way and in many different settings. Yeah. uh, Can you give us a lamp? Like, what are the what are the like signature settings where you found yourself as a professional musician that kind of stick out to you um, as I can't believe I'm doing this or this is thrilling or I am definitely going to be telling this story the rest of my life.
1: And there are some of them, some of the, uh, one of them is just gorgeous, but I don't want to take up too much of our time. I guess I could. What do you think? Yeah, of course. Okay. We're here. You're, you're the guest. I'm, (laughs) but you're the moderator. So the very first time that I'd say that what was happening, the interaction between the players and the audience that I was completely blown away was there used to be a center in Tulsa for what at the time were called mentally retarded children and autistic children. And it was called the Hissum Memorial Center. And my little friend and I, his name is Steve Smith, he was a drummer. We had been rehearsing for days, working up a zillion songs, you know, Beatles songs, Rolling Stone songs, um, Grand Funk songs, Three Dog Night songs. And we went to my dad and we said, Dad, we want to play. We want to play somewhere in front of people. And he called his memorial center and said, my son has a little band. They want to do a show. And they booked us. And actually I have it right here. Dad, I didn't know this until he passed away. He kept a log of all gigs I played in the first several years of my career. So this was, he doesn't have the date on this one. It just says 1970 is center. And we got paid $125 and I think we played for 35 minutes. And at the end, first of all, the kids were jumping up and down cheering, having a blast. And at the end of the show, for whatever reason, maybe we'd seen somebody do it on television We, Steve and I, we were 11 years old. We decided we would go to the kids and shake their hands and thank them. And we did. And this one little boy was seated in a wheelchair. And he said, thank you. And the entire room, including the nurses, got silent. And we thought, "Uh uh-oh, what have we done wrong? And they began leading the children out of the auditorium, I assume back to their rooms. And we did ask again, one of the nurses, did we do something wrong? And she said, no, that little boy hasn't spoken in two years. And we thought, wow, that's, that's impact. That is, that's important. That's, that matters. And that was just important, just as important to me as anything I went on to do over the last 40, 50 years. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah.
0: That and is we powerful. Learned,
1: we learned he was autistic, which at the time, we didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. You know, we the spectrum was not discussed at the time. And over the years, though, and I know that Steve, the other, the other musician who was a drummer, he has a picture on one of the walls of his home of Leon Russell talking about doing a show at Hissam and having the same experience.
0: Wow. I mean, talk about music being able to connect to people. Yeah. That is um, tears in the eyes for sure. Wow. I'm glad. Um and, and I mean, you've continued to play in settings like that. You you still have a gig at the re- retirement center. What what is it like to play music in in settings? Maybe uh, you know the Beatles are up on stage on the Ed Sullivan show, and you are right. in <laughs> Zero Point. Which what's the experience of producing music in in those settings? And, and what do you bring to
1: that? And what are some of your goals? And and and, and what's that experience like for you? We. I've done it with several different singing partners. Um, The woman I play with or perform with now, Stephanie Oliver, uh, she is brought to tears many times seeing the reactions of the residents and the patients. She, uh, and Jim Jakubovic, is he CEO or COO? I think he's CEO. I think so too of the retirement center. He's, He told me several years ago, he goes, I just went to a seminar where we learned that as far as cognition goes, music is the last thing to go. And we've seen it proved time after time. I've been playing there steadily now for, gosh, 19 years. And so at least once a month. And we saw member of the congregation, his mother, who hadn't, just like just like at hissum, hadn't spoken in years. <laughs> this one day, we finished performing an hour-long show, and she's on a stretcher, and she's being wheeled out, and she's singing, so long, it's been good to know you. And everybody just went, Oh my gosh. And these, these are, these are cherished experiences.
0: Talk about, I mean, music moving people. and yes. Doing what music should do. Absolutely. Um, creating experiences.
1: And like you said, it doesn't matter the setting. It doesn't matter if it's a, a tiny little room in a retirement center in Tulsa, Oklahoma with eight or 20 people or an arena with thousands of people. It doesn't matter at all. It's, it's, if you're making people feel it doesn't matter if it's a a nightclub on a Thursday night with a couple sitting at the bar saying that's beautiful or, or, or a, a, gentleman crying because the song reminds him of his deceased brother. Mm. It's, it's all beautiful. But, you know, that reminds me, one of my, one of my
0: teachers in rabbinical school, one of my rabbis mm-hmm. used to always say when he was a congregational rabbi, um, or when he was in community and, and doing the work of, of of leading community, that he always stopped counting at 10, Right. The the uh, the number ten obviously being a reference to quorum and minion and but he's like right. that was that's all that matters you it get, is all that you, matters. you get the num and then okay there's five hundred or there's thirty you stop counting at ten and then you create community and you create the experiences
1: so is that what um, you feel or experience too
0: yeah you know I, I, very much so I, I think it's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to Tulsa to our to our community. Um, where we are um, in, in raw numbers, we will never match Los Angeles or Miami or New York city. Um, But, but not an almost, it, it actually doesn't matter because what matters is who's in the room and what's the experience that we're going to be able to create for those people in the room. And by the way, nowadays, it's not even who's in the room, who's on zoom um, and who's able to tune in and who's able to take the, what we're able to to do, whether it's podcasts like this, or, um, or the High Holidays, which we should, uh, I guess, talk about as
1: well. Um, Can I ask you one more question? First? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Do you, as a rabbi, feel energy coming at you from the congregants or visitors during the service, as I do when I'm performing? Oh, for sure.
0: You okay. know, that's, and I would say that's been maybe the most difficult thing about surface leading on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know we've been and and in, in, in the hybrid experiences that we've been uh, experimenting with over the past um, couple of months, we, we have people in the room now and people are singing, but there is something about um, not singing alone. There's something about knowing that what we're doing is leading and on zoom. And there are settings where you get that feedback in ways, ways that we, we do feel that. And and, and absolutely. But, um, but yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe it's, it's that flow. Um, I like what you describe you and Rafi thinking about saying earlier that there are times in which you stop thinking um, and which it is just being carried. And I think that, is achievable or more easily achievable when you're in a room full of people who are who are there to carry absolutely Um, you know uh it's uh the i'm very glad that this year when we gather for high holidays and the way we're um, unfolding things is that we're going to have our band back we're getting the band back together you know I thought we should, like, have an opening montage of, like, us driving around in a pickup truck and you guys all hopping (laughs) in the back. Uh, No alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that that, that experience of producing music itself um, uh, together... Um, is is transformative and, yes. and and i actually think it it helps bring more people along um when the music is uh just loud enough but not too loud that you can sing you can hear yourself and you're not worried about others hearing you so that you can build that cacophony um uh, yes. oh, that i mean yeah let's let's get there soon <laughs>
1: it, it is the best
0: um we've uh, Julie asks and, uh, and and points us in the direction of another part of your career, because you have played in rooms where there aren't that many people, but I know that you've played in rooms where there are lots and lots of people, life on tour. So she highlights wilderness, and I'm not sure what she means by wilderness, but I'll
1: just say the word out loud. And then the Juds, Any any stories from those experiences? Sure, the ones from wilderness I probably shouldn't share. Um, but we were a a rock band here in Tulsa okay. that gained gained some notoriety, and we were darned good. We uh, we tackled uh, some pretty tough music at young ages, and and I'm still in touch with one of the guys. He's one of my closest friends. He still lives here. He's a physical therapist here, and he's an outstanding bass player. But, um, I don't know if you've heard the band. Yes. They were yeah. a progressive, rock. they're still mm-hmm. together, but they were a progressive rock band, uh, in the 1970s. We would play their music and we, we played, it played at Kane's ballroom a couple of times. We, um, uh, we played a lot of high school proms. We played, we played wherever we could. Dad has those, those gigs listed here too.
0: <laughs>
1: and, uh, but, uh, and then the Judds came much later, in 1991. I, tell, us, uh,
0: tell us about that part of your career. What, what sure. happened? How did you end up there? And what was that experience?
1: I was working at a Dueling Pianos, the first high-energy rock and roll Dueling Pianos bar in uh, Dallas. And I had played with a played jazz with a drummer who ended up working as drummer for the Judds. He called me and he said, would you like to audition for the job? And I was musical director of this Dueling Pianos Bar. So I I kind of, it was like being a general manager. You could take off whenever you wanted. So I gave myself a week to prepare, not working, and sat in my apartment and learned the music. And went to Nashville for the first time ever and was wearing what I thought were the right clothes for the audition. I went and bought a $200 pair of cowboy boots, went to a West at a Western store, bought a, what I describe as a Garth Brooks looking shirt and with pearl snaps instead of buttons, black Wranglers and uh, showed up at the audition. And the, uh, the drummer, the friend of mine said, what the H are you wearing? And he said, come here, I got some spare clothes. We got to get you out of these. So I put on one of his nice dress shirts and a pair of slacks. Anyway, ended up having to go through three auditions, got the job. Uh, And on a Monday, I was playing in front of 175 people at uh, at the club in Dallas. And on a Friday, I was playing in front of 30,000 in Tampa Bay. And I think you said something earlier about feeling, I don't know if it was, it wasn't, joy wasn't the word you used, but the astonishment of of that many people. And because I wasn't singing on this job, I didn't have a microphone. So I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I was just saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. And, and smiling because it was fun. I mean, it was what I, that was, I think, similar to what I thought my life was going to be when I first saw the Beatles on television.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought, here I am. You did it. I did it. And it even, you know, it even got bigger. We played once for 80,000 people, wow. which was more than, than what the Beatles had at Shea Stadium. This was at uh, where wherever the East St. Louis football team played their home games, Bush Bush Stadium. I think no, I don't know, but there we were.
0: Is there um like even a like a logistical difference of playing piano for eighty thousand people versus like from like a technical like experience of pressing the key, hearing the notes reverberate? How how what 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 happens?
1: In an outdoor stadium like that, no, but we did every year that I was with the Juds and Winona Judd, we would play the Houston Livestock Show, which was held in the Astrodome. And our sound engineer would tell us every time the same spiel. Gentlemen, there is an eight and one half second delay in this building. And I thought, nah, who cares? And so he said, pay attention to your monitors. Do not listen to the ambient sound going through the room, or you will be severely screwed up. And I, again, I semi-ignored his advice for just a second, and I thought, I'm going to check this out. And I listened to the sound, and I heard it bouncing around giant dome for eight and a half seconds. And it almost threw me off. And I thought I had better take his advice. And I just riveted my ears on the monitor on the speaker beside me.
0: And then, so it's, it's you key in on the monitor and you really need that monitor to get you through. You have
1: to. Yeah. And now like we use at the synagogue, it would be in an in-ear, in-ear monitor. Uh-huh.
0: Um, okay, so a serious question: Do you yeah. still have that outfit, and will you be wearing it to how it is this year?
1: I could, I could go purchase another. <laughs> I would want to, you know, I'd want to update. <laughs> Times have changed.
0: Uh, I think, I think people would be very pleased at such an experience. So it's, it's in your choice. We don't make you know wardrobe directions, but you
1: know, you'll you, whatever,
0: whatever happens, happens.
1: As long as there's a Yamaka. <laughs>
0: Yes, that would be great. That would be great. And so let's talk about High Holidays for uh, sure. for a few. We have just a few minutes left um, before we conclude. Um, and you've been playing High Holidays for for many years now. Fifteen years? Is it? I think eighteen. Longer. Eighteen. I years. think eighteen. Wow. And um, but in in some ways, this is a, a continuation of. That the that organ playing you started doing when you were in your own jewish educational experiences and, yes. and kind of playing music in that way what do you um hope for as you as we're thinking about high holidays the high holidays i mean all of us here and many people who are listening are thinking about getting ready for the high holidays what do you how do you prepare for for the high holidays i
1: think this year it's it's going to be very moving because we didn't get to do it last year. Um, And you stressed that to me in a talk that we had with Rabbi Fitzerman. And uh, it's, you know, it's, I think not just for me, for every single person that is able to show up, whether a musician, non-musician, anyone, Rabbi. (laughs) And he, he, both of the rabbis. Mm -hmm. Cantor Rafi, it's, it's, it's going to be meaningful for us for a long time.
0: It's a powerful
1: experience. It's that
0: big year moment.
1: Yeah. Even in, in regular years, it's powerful. And it's, it's, for me, it's always when I first, came to the synagogue, I would try to balance. You and I had spoken to a group of teenagers once, and we talked about how once you've had the experience of of attending on a regular basis services, which I hadn't had because I was on the road, um, I always try to balance Getting some spirituality out of it, which while doing while doing the music, it's harder at high holy days, I find because there's so much music. But I still More try about, to find. I try to find those moments during Amidah.
0: Mm-hmm. Those moments for quiet, those moments where it can actually be our our, our expression of of prayer because yes. as leaders, as I mean, we call we call the band Clay Kodesh, which means Holy vessels, um, and I love that name for the, for the for the for the group because it 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 it, it reminds us of this um, responsibility. We're, we're holding we're holding it. We're hoping to be vessels, and also that us our work as vessels as a as a team that's putting it together yes. can enable other people to use that for their prayer experience or their reflective experiences or their or they're snoozing off because it's services. And that's what people do
1: too. Sometimes that's okay. We can see that's okay. I never so caught up in my own world. Sometimes in high holy days, Mm -hmm. didn't think that you're using Amida for the same purpose as I am. Yeah. Well, everybody, the whole congregation is, but you're seizing the moments that you get. Trying to. I mean, yeah it's, and it's and it's a and and
0: and maybe that also speaks to one of the challenges of prayer. The more you do it, the more familiar you are, but
1: mm-hmm. also
0: the less magical it might be or uh, in terms of its ability to create wonder or create this So it's always this balance of familiarity and newness of performance and prayer of bringing people along. Uh, Julie puts the word kavana, the Uh, intention. Um, My favorite translation of that word is heart pointing. Like where are you going to direct your heart? And keva, the structure, what's going to get played next? And how are those family voices going to layer in together? I
1: I see Ken put put up just what you said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Heart alignment. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Ken, like we're, we're, we're trying to balance all of this and I don't know. I, 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 I know always, every time we do it at some point, we'll get there as you described um, early on, there's going to be a moment. There's going to be a a piece. Is there a part of the service that for you is more reliable to achieve that than other parts of the service?
1: You mean in, in in, in in high conjunction Holiday. with the Amida, or or like, is there yeah, or is there is there a part of like
0: what if you were to think about like the music we produce over the high holidays, and most of it stays the same, and of course we're changing things year over year and all the things, but like the general structure is the same. Is there a part of that a moment a musical piece that you, when we're coming up on it, you're said, oh, this is probably where where I'm gonna get lost or I I, would I, I'm say feeling it.
1: Musically, two places: okay. El Male Rachamim and um, the entire last service of Yom Kippur. Uh, Ni'ilah. Neila, yes. yes. Thanks oh, for, for sure. helping me.
0: Yeah, Neila is. I, I'm with you on that. And for me, it's not. Not only is it Neila, but it's what is that? uh It's um, uh, the it it-
1: it- it- tach- Which
0: one? It- Oh, that's so powerful. And Sandy's
1: nodding her yeah. head and I'm seeing other people.
0: So yeah. let's get there. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, we are here. We are a week away. Next week we're actually going to get together and we're going to be able to, 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 to start uh-huh. our work as a um as a synagogue uh band getting ready for the holidays truly aptly asks, is it time for a new CD? I think it's always time for a new CD, always time to be putting out more recordings. Oh, and we're gonna start rehearsing. We're gonna start making this music. And I hope that this, um, I don't know, John talking like this has really uh, um, uh, got me in the High Holiday mood in a a new and refreshed way. So I'm glad this is working out in this way. Um, Same here. It's we're, we're coming up on time. I'm noticing that, and I wanted to uh, just uh, remind folks about high holidays and, and all the things that are coming up on the synagogue calendar. Things are in a hybrid format, and there's opportunities for people to be with us in person, inside, and outside, and there are um, opportunities for um folks to tune in at a distance, both at a physical distance, but also at a distance that will enable people to, to feel safe and comfortable um, as we navigate the, the pandemic, uh, continue to navigate this pandemic. And we will um we will we will make this experience stronger and more powerful together. Um, John, thank you
1: oh, thank so you. much
0: for Bye-bye. being our guest today. Um, and I wanted to thank everyone for joining us. Um, we'll see each other real soon and uh, and always tune back in for next next episode every Friday at eleven am. give or take episodes of two rabbis and take care, everyone.